Why don't you write when you don't need money, honey? That would certainly make a hit. Welcome to Word Docs. I'm Dr. Amy Matthews, and I'm here today with Dr. Alex Vickery Howe. Yo! And Dr. Sean Williams. Um, hello there. I'm not sure how to follow you. Yo! <laughs> <laughs> I say good afternoon. <laughs> we thought we'd start talking today um, about genre, which is something we come back to over and over, and partly because it's a topic I usually teach, and it's a topic that Sean is currently teaching for me mm. because I am on study leave. And I usually divide up my year into different genres. So the first half of the year I teach romance, horror, sci-fi, which is what Sean's currently teaching. And in the second half of the year I teach historical fiction. And what's this semester's topic called, Amy? It's called Sex and Death in Outer Space. Who wouldn't want to study that course? It's a bit messy, but, you know. <laughs> I, I like the idea That's there's an image. I like the idea. <laughs> that students enrolled, not even realising it was a creative writing course. (laughs) (laughs) It's got a really dry title, actually. It's like Ingle 2143 Approaches to Creative Writing. And then I put a colon on the end and put Sex and Death in Outer Space. (laughs) I just hijacked it. So often they sign up not knowing that it's called Sex and Death in Outer Space and then they get the handbook and they're like, hold on a minute. What have I signed on for? Yeah, well, so we, we kind of have been chatting off mic for a little while about some of the issues around writing genre because all of us do it and I went on a bit of a rant a couple of weeks ago and then Sean and Alex said well there's a there's an episode <laughs> we wish we'd recorded you at the time shall we start with my rant I'll start, start with my rant with your and rant. then you guys you have permission to rant well hang on maybe we should start by defining what we are talking about when we talk about genre so oh yes. genre Because genre is a big term and, in fact, Uh there is an English topic at our university which is called Exploring Genres and I've lost them both because they're giggling over Alex being French, (laughs) so I'll just continue. (laughs) Um, And when they talk about exploring genres, they're talking about very broad genres like short story, nonfiction, poetry, very, very broad. When I talk about genre, I'm talking about commercial fiction, really. So you have literary fiction and then what they call general mainstream fiction is very broad. And then when they say genre, they mean horror, romance, science fiction, fantasy, and they all get kind of clumped together in non-literary fiction. And there was a big to-do a few years ago between Margaret Atwood and Ursula Le Guin. Do you remember that, Sean? I do very, very well. Where they had an argument because Margaret Atwood doesn't consider herself to be a genre writer, to be a science fiction writer. And Ursula Le Guin basically said, yes, you are. Of course you are. So that was really what my rant is about, is about that that line between genre fiction, meaning sci-fi, fantasy, spec fic, you know, all of those popular fictions and literary fiction. Because you often hear people, um, I've heard it a lot so I'm not going to attribute to any one person because I've heard it from many many people sort of talking about when they want to publish something or write something or read something that is in genre they want something original that breaks the boundaries that um, strives to do something new with the form and this is where my rant comes in because I'm like well that's not the genre anymore what you're talking about is literary fiction now what you're talking about is writing in a whole nother genre because what you really 
really want to ask for, I think, is genre fiction done excellently. So you don't want to break horror fiction. What you want to do is write it excellently. I think that's the line for me. And I don't know if I've made that clear. Do you need to ask me any questions? Whether I'm, <laughs> that was that no, that's, that's crystal clear. It's interesting <laughs> because uh, we were talking off mic about this. And um, one of the things that Sean and I said simultaneously was um, know the rules before you break them. And I and the other one I think I believe in is, you know, try telling a simple story well because it's effing hard. And I do think there's a tendency particularly with perhaps emerging authors or, or, or new authors to um, go, well, I'm going to break, I'm going to break the rules. Mm. I'm going to burn it down. And on one level, I think, great, you know, experimentation is fantastic. Ambition is fantastic. But I also think you need to learn these rules before you start um, bending, let alone breaking them, because it's actually really hard to do this stuff well. And, I think when you start talking too much about breaking the mold, what you run the risk of doing is being a little bit disrespectful to those who, mm. um, who, who, who have mastered this, the, these areas. And I guess the cheeky part of me, which is probably a good 80%, uh, (laughs) also thinks that it can be a bit of an excuse for not doing your due diligence or your homework. Well, I'm going to be a rule breaker, so I don't have to Mm. read. I'm going to be a rule breaker, so I don't have to know the genre. I'm going to be a rule breaker, so the rules don't apply to me. Um, I'm going to write a book with no punctuation, therefore I don't need to learn grammar. But also, even even on the classics, it, it... it just makes me enraged if you lift Frankenstein or Dracula out of horror and you say, no, they're literary fiction now. It's like, well, no, they're just excellent examples mm. of horror. Or you take Jane Austen and say, well, she's not romance, she's literary. And there's an awful lot of people who would sneer at romance but who absorb Jane Austen and any Jane Austen knockoff. Mm. And it's like, well, no, that's just romance done excellently and well-written. And I think that does a disservice to popular fictions to say that literary fiction is something separate from it. Are there parallels? I absolutely agree. But are there parallels in music, Sean? Because I often think with, with music, um, I, you know, I love experimental music. Uh, you know, I love all, all of that stuff. But I also think that um, there is that kind of thing of know, know your genre in music as well. well. Certainly the hardest thing to write is a good pop song. Yeah, yes. That's, that's, that's what I was circling around. Yeah. It's an incredibly difficult skill. Yeah. And you see this in film as well as music. The recent spat about the artistic value of Avengers films Mm. uh, sort of diminished cinema criticism Mm. (laughs) on the whole I think Mm. people saying they're not real films because they're commercial oh this was a Scorsese thing I think James Cameron was on that bandwagon as well which I found very very yeah very curious I was like uh, what I do wonder about these things though because I think partly it's when Sean did his 10.5 commandments in that episode if anyone wants to go look it up again was it the first one was read widely yes and I do think partly whenever I hear someone say we want to break the mold or stretch it or be more original, that's a lack of – it shows a lack of reading in that genre. It's not understanding yes. the wealth of history there, the depth of literature there. Because people, if you don't read in, in a lot of popular genres, I think you're thinking of the worst examples, right? The yes. famous worst examples instead of the best examples. That makes absolute sense. And and I think that that's why you should read widely and read into things – read things you wouldn't 
naturally gravitate towards and, and try and get your head around them. I think that makes total sense. Is it partly our obsession with the new as well? This I always think there's always the new. Who's the next wunderkind? Who's the next uh, trendsetter? Uh, what's the next big thing? That we're always looking for the new and we want it sort of straight away. And that search for the new means that everything, every every book needs to throw the baby out with the yeah. bathwater. There's another metaphor for you. You know, everything needs to be... Uh, um, a game changer and I don't know if that's driven by publicity or, or, or the market what, what that's driven by and yet the big ones like a lot of people who maybe would sneer at popular fiction would be the biggest Harry Potter fans right because YA seems to be a place where people are comfortable to go to genre like they drop those expectations of literariness and get to be playful and to engage with the fun of story again do you find that with YA Sean? yeah one of the fascinating things about YA is that <clears throat> Once you become established there, you can almost write whatever you like. You become a YA author, not a genre writer. Mm. So you can write a science fiction novel, then a steampunk novel, then a romance novel, then a et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So my last novel, Impossible Music, was set here in Adelaide. The previous novels were set hundreds of years in the future, sci-fi apocalyptic adventure. It doesn't matter. You're not as constrained there. You're constrained by the the YA-ness of your book, mm. not by otherwise what else is in it. That's an awkward way of putting it. That's interesting because if we've been circling around this idea of audience expectation off mic, we've been talking about this a bit. The, the expectation of YA then is much more flexible. And I think that respects that reflects the readership. I don't know about you guys, but when I was an, an early teenager, I was reading anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. Oh, me too. Yeah, definitely. Later, I, I just read science fiction and fantasy, but in the early days, it was whatever was lying around. So uh, I would read read a romance novel and then I'd read a western then I'd read a science fiction novel yeah. and, and I think young readers are like that until they quite naturally decide that they're going to like a particular thing and then read obsessively into that thing mm. and then later as an adult hopefully they'll open up, up and up again particularly if they're a writer. There is an identity thing too around fandom now too so that I am this like I am a Harry Potter person or I am a science fiction person or I am a Jedi or whatever it is. People <laughs> kind of have calcified. I, I often hear um, I am a fantasy pure Purist. I don't even know what that really means because how could you be a fantasy purist? If you're a fantasist, then you're fantasizing. But I think it's the idea that um, there are certain key texts that are that are part of the canon and there are things that are outside that. And so people will say, oh, I'm a fantasy purist, so I'll only read Tolkien and I don't know who else. Um, Le Guin again. Yes, yes. Yeah. There's a handful that write in that particular mode, but that's its own kind of subgenre. What, what makes that more pure fantasy than what came before it? I mean, there were plenty mm. of people writing fantasy in the generations leading up to Lord of the Rings that has its own kind of style. Mm. But I hear that one a lot, that fantasy purist comes up a lot, and I always think it's almost an oxymoron in my brain because I think if you're a fantasist, then you're dreaming what you dream. So how can there be constraints on that? But, um, yeah, I think you're right. I think fandom uh, is um, at its best when it's, you know, just a preference. (laughs) 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 And at its worst when it becomes um, a clique, right? A clique where at the exclusion of all other things, I am this kind of fan, which is, you know, I I love people that are Star Wars nuts and they're Trekkies. You can be both. It's not sacrilegious. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's not sacrilegious. You can be both. Yeah. Or DC or Marvel. Like, you have to pick one. Buffy or Twilight. Buffy or Twilight. Well, okay, uh, on that one. (laughs) (laughs) 
we're so tribal, aren't we? It's so easy to draw these lines arbitrarily around these IPs. So yeah. on the one hand, it's fantastic. On the other hand, it is well, because that Okay, so that line thing is interesting because what the topic we teach is about partly is how those lines get drawn. Mm. So are they drawn by literary critics? Are they driven by market forces? Because a lot of this is about how you get books in the hands of readers and how readers find things. So partly genres are defined by what comes before. Mm-hmm. So Dracula defines a lot of vampire fiction, even if they're writing against it. Um, yes. And then once Dracula's defined the genre, people can look back and say, well, what about Varney the Vampire? Or what about uh, Sheridan Le Fanu's great novel, The Name of Which I've Forgotten, novella? Mm-hmm. Uh, they become absorbed into the genre as kind of forerunners. Yeah. Mm. And the genre constantly stretches and contracts around whatever's happening. When Twilight comes, this is what vampires were like. We're going to absorb that now that they can be out in the day, but they glitter. And mm-hmm. um, and romance, you start off with something like Jane Austen, everyone loves to death. So then Georgette Heyer is doing something in that tradition. And then you get, you know, a whole industry. Yeah, in the, in the tradition of, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The uh, Getting back to the, the, the Twilight thing, I've got a friend who was saying the other day. <laughs> oh, we've set him off. No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to stay on Twilight. But I've got a friend that was like, "Why is it that vampires and werewolves hate each other now?" Because going back a few years, they were all hanging out together with the guy from the Black Lagoon. Oh, the Monster Squad. (laughs) They're all the same team, and now everyone's like vampires versus werewolves. That's canon now. And you go, "What what are they? What cause do they have for conflict?" You know, in Dracula, um, they're described as the same. Vampires and werewolves are the same creature. Yeah, the Dracul, which is fascinating. If you like that kind of thing. It's funny, but how a popular mythology, I guess, changes. And this idea that um, Amy just alluded to of the, the in the style of or in the tradition of, that that to me is probably that's about readership, right? You know, if, if you tell me that Amy Matthews is the next whoever, mm. then I go, okay, I'll, I'll pick that book up and give it a shot. I don't know where you would classify yourself. But, but then uh, that's interesting too because that's also the brush that can tie you as well, Yeah, right? absolutely. So if there is too much in the tradition, if there are too many people in a tradition, then it's kind of dismissed as you're not original enough. Mm. So it's like where you fit in the train as well, of like how many carriages there are before you or at the same time as I you. often think you know having done some work as a, a script assessor for a while what I came down to in the end was you want to be absolutely within the parameters of a genre but just quirky enough to stand out yeah. not too not yeah. too quirky we're not we're not going to spend money on something that's um, too out there it's too much of a risk and there were there were scripts that fell into that category but one of the most complimentary things I could say as a script assessor was does what it says on the label yeah yeah and I guess getting back to Margaret Atwood I was just thinking about what excellently means and why some works are held up as being beyond genre and into literature and thinking about is it the quality of writing is it the razor sharp observations I mean because you can fit within a plot structure even but if you do it excellently or like originally or you have a twist at the end that no one saw coming or I was just going to ask you guys what you think that means excellently like what does that actually mean? (laughs) You first used excellently in the sentence 
that it's excellent genre. It's, it's genre fiction that's written excellently. Is that right? Yeah, I guess I, I'm thinking about my – that's my definition. Mm. But then when I think about how other people – how some works are lifted up, right? So Stephen King is one of those people who maybe very recently has been slightly lifted up, like got the American Award for Letters or whatever it was called and is studied at university now, but is still pretty widely dismissed as being a bit trashy. So if you take – he wrote The Stand, obviously, about the virus – and then you take Station Eleven, which is now like a literary darling at the moment. They're about very similar things in some ways, but one is held up as more literary than the other. Um, and that literariness is kind of perceived as excellence in some way. Feels like it's partly about timing at that point, isn't it? Um, we do an exercise in first year at drama that is... Um I don't know if we do it necessarily for this reason, but it, it is a useful lesson in this way. We show them a piece of either Japanese kabuki theatre or Japanese no theatre, not no theatre. Probably not saying that correctly, but there you go. And we we do that do it to expose them to something unusual and unexpected. And, but what it actually does more often than not in the tutorials and the follow up conversations is it reinforces all of the conventions that we expect from storytelling because when you actually throw something at them that that comes from a different culture and that absolutely is counter to those conventions then it's like being an american trying to watch an aussie rules football match where you just go i don't know what's what going on <laughs> why are they wearing helmets i don't know like my cousin nicole's like what are they doing i don't get it so in a way it's a really good lesson in saying a lot of these rules you want to break a lot of these mm. conventions you want to challenge if i actually show you something that challenges those conventions and breaks those rules <laughs> your reaction is hysterical like i don't get this i don't understand it um, um, what the hell's going on? So the argument I make then is, on the one hand, absolutely look at what other cultures have done and, and, and explore that. But on the other, understand that there are expectations of structure and genre that we are culturally uh, trained in, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not. And um, that if we work within those parameters, um, we are more likely to deliver a story that an audience is going to want to watch or read. So in other words, that I think the audience has expectations. You know, I used to argue with script editors around the sorts of rules that they enforce. You know, on page 65, this needs to happen. On page 25, this needs to happen. I used to argue about it. And then eventually I went, you know what? A, it makes my job easier if I, if I roll over and, and do this. And B, there's something in those structures that audiences do respond to mm. because of all the the um, work that's come before. So I would say, how do you do it excellently? Excellently, I would say you do a trigger on page twenty five and a you know a, a critical choice on page whatever it is. I would do all of those things, but I would just try and do them slightly subversively or slightly unexpectedly. And then I think you're writing within the conventions of the genre, but just doing something a little bit quirky on top. And I think. As, as formulaic as that sounds, and I'm, and I'm aware that it does, I think there's a lot to be said for that um, in terms of reaching a market. And I don't think that's const constricting you. I think you can be very creative within that. Yeah, well, we're teaching romance, though, and that's the one that where people really throw formulaic out there. And mm. there's this great myth that Mills and Boone have, have it. I remember actually being in honours and uh, one of our teachers putting up a chart and going, this is the Mills and Boone myth. Like, this is the thing that you have to do. And he said it as though it was true. 
true and it's absolutely not true. There's not a graph you have to make. Was it a, a series of rules or, or what was no, it? No, not at all. Basically, it has to be about two people and they have to end up together at the end and you've only got 55,000 words so there's no room for secondary characters basically, right? And it's up to you how that those two people, how it plays out. There's a billion variations of that. Yes. But there is no formula other than the restriction that it's a romantic relationship between two humans who have to have a happy ending, right? Mm. And happy ending these days doesn't mean marriage. It doesn't mean anything. For, it can be happy for now, whatever it is. Yeah. And in these days, it doesn't even have to be two people. There are polyamorous <laughs> stories as well. But the way I like to think about it is this is just a form. Like the novel has a form. Literary fiction has has conventions. This is a, it's not a form so much as as literary conventions and how is that different from a sonnet which has yes. a very rigid form this is just a rigid form or a pop song as, as Sean was saying you know that yeah and it's very lazy to, to dismiss it as formulaic because I having written in the genre it's a really hard genre to do because you have to nail character then because you've only got two people and you've got to give them enough depth and complexity that you give a shit if they end up together or not <laughs> do you think it's sometimes an excuse that people make like oh that's formulaic i can't be bothered learning the form <laughs> you know that therefore like it's a, you know. a culturally embedded prejudice that's so i think uh, particularly with romance i think it's very tied up with a deeply embedded sexism mm. and i think with fan culture it, there's a there's an embedded classism toxic masculinity oh, that yeah, too. Toxic yes. masculinity mm. and classism um classism is a really big one because i mm. think that is yeah. one reason literary fiction is lifted up because you need a certain level of education to understand mm. James Joyce or T.S. Eliot or whatever. Um, or even to encounter these books, these authors. Yes, yes yeah. to be exposed to them in the first place. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we're going back a few steps too. I think the covers are one reason things get dismissed mm. and that's classism. It's what, you know, people have their respectable books in their living room and then they're what they're really reading in their bedroom. Ah. <laughs> yeah, like Harry Potter came out with separate covers for adults <laughs> yeah, and kids. that's right, the yeah. adult covers. Wow. It's oh, hilarious. I really enjoy literary conventions uh, and I think of writing Star Wars novels as, as another literary convention. You, you're wanting to write something that feels like Star Wars and in which things blow up and people travel around really quickly. And, and uh, But you approach these forms with the view to writing excellently. And what that means to me is you've... Here I'm speaking for all yep. writers, but I'm really speaking for myself. I approach these books as a contract between me and the readers, yeah. as well yeah. as a contract between me and the publishers, say if it's Star Wars, where you're going to deliver according to their expectations. And go, if you're going to do that, you're going to do it so well, they'll absolutely love it. And if you're mm. not going to do it, if you're going to deliver them something slightly differently, you leave them feeling confounded, but glad they've got something else. You've done it even more excellently what they didn't expect. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's playing with the form and experimenting and and value adding to their experience in a way they didn't expect. In, in some ways, it's a bit like if you were going out f- to a pizza restaurant for dinner, right? And there are mm. a billion ways to make pizza. But it's a bit like mm. if you turned up and they were like, we've deconstructed the pizza. You get a bit of salami on a plate. We've got rid of the dough. Yes. You know, yes. there's no cheese. And you'd be like, but hold on a minute. I came for pizza. I don't care whether exactly. it's like gourmet, exactly. gourmet pizza with lamb and whatever or whether it's a margarita basic. I came for I, pizza. I had a deconstructed burger once. I mean, only once in my entire life because I thought you still got the buns. 
but you don't get the buttons. <laughs> no, so I was like looking at free. <laughs> with a with a tooth toothpick in it, and I was like, "That's just a bunch of." I'm a vegetarian too, so that's just a bunch of vegetables with a toothpick in it. I wanted the buns, but there were no buns. If you went to a Star Wars novel and there was no Millennium Falcon, no there was no like lightsaber thing, you'd be like, "I want the bun." <laughs> What the bun? I did go to a molecular gastronomy restaurant once in New York where I had a, a deconstructed pizza, exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> and it was one little ball of dough, one little ball of mushroom, one little ball of something else, and a smear of tomato. Oh, just kill them. But it did what it said on the box, right? That's like buying the literary fiction. Yes, that's yeah. exactly the point I was going to make. This was the contract we had. I was expecting something weird. But if I'd gone to a, you know, buy a slice for a dollar. If <laughs> <laughs> you'd gone there and they delivered it. Like Pizza Hut pizza, you'd be like, "What the what the what's what this? The I pay I pay, I pay sixty bucks for this." For this? <laughs> <laughs> well, that that is interesting, yeah, because uh, I'm a big fan of Martin Crimp, who's a postmodern playwright, or, or all the work by Martin Cripp that I've read has, I would call, broadly postmodern. And the most famous one is Attempts on Her Life, which is a play without characters. It's just dash, line, dash, line, dash, line. You don't know how many people... Well, you know that most scenes have at least two people, but it could be eight. Wow. Yeah, that's you, cool. You don't that's know. Great. And And every scene is a kind... There is a thematic link and there is, um, there is a through line. But I've seen that play performed probably about four times. I was in it as a student as well and you know every production is completely different has almost nothing in common but that is the contract you if you're if you go to see a martin crimp play like sean is saying that is the contract right i know i'm going to see something a little bit out there if i go to see a, a lloyd webber play and you know and i get someone sitting in a bath full of cream naked you know <laughs> playing the piano that's going to be a strange night for me um when <laughs> i was in year 12 we went we went in drama to see um ruth cracknell in in beckett's happy days i love ruth where cracknell. she's like uh, by the end buried up to her neck in like the dirt and people uh, were walking out like they were complaining and walking out because clearly they're like theater like members of the playhouse or whatever and come yeah. to everything and they were like what the hell is this and they're expecting perhaps something like mother and son, I suppose. I don't yeah, know. I you know the, or at you know, least like a plot that makes sense or yeah. not just a woman buried up to her neck in mud. I often think that with, with critics that that um, you need to review what it is you're actually reading, not what you thought it was going to be or in the case of a play. I did a um, the second rock musical I ever did and I didn't come up with the title. Someone gave me the title and a basic plot. So it was called Retaliation. And I just like say, I couldn't say it with a straight face. I had to say retaliation. And when I was working with, um, uh, when I was working with the muso, I said, somehow we've got to get the word retaliation into a song lyric. And she did it. And I was amazed because I was like, anyway, didn't love the title, but the, the play was lots of fun. Uh, and it was partially funded. I forget. I think the group, I, I won't mention the name because I think I'm going to get it wrong, but it was a group of um, counselors and psychologists who were interested in retaliation, retaliation. <laughs> They're interested in violence, young people in violence, and um, so they had funded it partially. Um, so their answer was, let's put on a show. Let's put on a show. And then the director <laughs> had this idea to do another rock musical, and so she said it's a rock musical about video games. It's like Space Demons, but it's a rock musical, <laughs> and it's about violent video games. So I went uh, in accordance with that brief, and I wrote Space Demons, the rock musical, and I, qu- I still quite like 
it. I, I, I dug it out the other day. I mean, I, I, the songs are good and it's it's funny. But then a reviewer who knew the structure of it, the structure of the funding, went. I thought I was going to see a gritty, hard-edged, hard-edged thing about teenagers and violence, and suddenly I'm watching this sci-fi video game with this <laughs> Star Wars prince, you know, trying to liberate <laughs> the galaxy. It's it's a great rock musical, but it's not what it's supposed to be. And I thought that was really interesting because I went, well, you need to judge what it was, not mm. what you think it should have been based on how it was funded. And that's a separate conversation to have with the company or or what have you. But the brief was. A rock. It's what the kids wanted to do too. The kids wanted to do a big, mm. fun rock musical. They didn't want to do a hard edge thing about. Vi- it was about violence and video games. Thematically, it, it made sense. What all our conversations are coming back to is not just expectation, but about nuanced expectation. That a pizza is not always a pizza. A musical is not always a, like a musical. Cigar is not always a cigar. Yes, exactly. You know, um, looking at something for what it is, and and um, having an understanding. Not that you want to box things too sharply, but that sometimes a box is okay and that sometimes working towards a box is okay. Getting back to what I said earlier about doing what you said on the label. If I pick up a Star Wars novel, I want it to be a Star Wars novel. I don't want it to be Ruth Cracknell. <laughs> up to a up to a neck. But if I go and see a piece of theatre that's avant-garde, then I, I don't want to see lightsabers necessarily. Although I suppose there could be a piece of avant-garde theatre with lightsabers that's possible. <laughs> Let's make it happen. When you start out as a writer or a pizza maker, <laughs> it's not a bad thing <laughs> to just try to do something simple well. Yeah, I think that's the challenge you should set yourself. I really believe in that because um, it's going to be harder than you think yeah. and it's going to be probably more fun and more engaging than you think. And I think for me, having written romance, the skills I learned doing something simple well made everything I did better. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to have to wrap it up there because we're out of time as usual but that's been really fun and next time i'm going to get one of them to bring a rant when we do a ranty episode (laughs) (laughs) but until then happy writing happy romancing that's my rant no that is my rant right there (laughs) never again never again uh happy writing everybody Why don't you write when you don't need money? All your notes sound alike too much. All of them start with I love you, honey, but they end with the same old touch. Just for a change, send a nice loving letter and cut out that please remittance. Why don't you write when you don't need money? Honey, that would certainly make a hit. It's such a tricky... Oh, uh, to row. Now, what's the tricky, tricky bow to put? No, what's the tricky? It's a- <laughs> He's in a boat with a bow and arrow. Is it a hard needle to thread? <laughs> it's a, it's, yeah, it's all those things. If you're, it's a pair of shoes <laughs> that don't quite fit on a summer's day. <laughs> I can't lace my shoes. <laughs> Well, let's go back to another cliche. I've got yes. a blunt sword. That's the one that works, absolutely. <laughs>